Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 212 of the Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to be joined by Teresa Runsteller, PhD. She's an award-winning scholar of African-American history whose research focuses on the intersection of race, masculinity, labor, and sport. Her most recent book, Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the Generation That Saved the Soul of the NBA is out through bold type books and examines how black players transformed their professional hoops game, both on and off the court in the 1970s. She's also the author of Jack Johnson, Rebel Sojourner, Boxing in the Shadow of the Global Color Line. That's from UC Press in 2012. That's a transnational biography that explores the first African-American world heavyweight champion's legacy as a black sporting hero and anti-colonial icon in places as far flung as Sydney, London, Cape Town, Manila, Paris, Havana, and Mexico City. This book won the 2013 Phyllis Wheatley Book Prize from the Northeast Black Studies Association. Teresa has written for Time.com and the LA Review of Books and shared her expertise on the History Channel, Al Jazeera America, Vox.com, NPR, and international radio outlets, including the BBC and CBC. Originally from Ontario, Canada, she is a professor at American University and lives in Baltimore with her husband and son. Good morning. How are you doing today? Good morning. Sorry, I had to mute there for a second to get a little cough out. (laughs) That's all right. That's all right. Besides the cough, you doing okay this morning? <laughs> I am. I am. I'm doing well. Awesome. Well, it's it's great to talk to you. Um, the biography is is awesome. You've written some really important work, including the book we're going to talk about today, um, the History Channel. I had a friend who the history professor was on there. How cool was that to be on the History Channel? What did you talk about? It was. Yeah, it was super cool. So that was associated with my first book. Mm-hmm. My first book was about Jack Johnson, the first ever black world heavyweight champion, who of course was known for his uh, interracial dalliances uh, back in the early 1900s. And so the History Channel was doing um, a series on how sex changed the world. Ah. And so I was looking at all different kinds of um, policy uh, surrounding um, sex. And just Jack Johnson came up because he was convicted under the Mann Act against white slavery, Mm. um, which was a law that was supposed to be an anti-prostitution law. Um, You cannot bring... uh, you know, women across state lines for the purposes of um, prostitution. But the the law at that time in the early 1900s was so vague in its Mm -hmm. wording. So it included, you know, something as vague as debauchery. Well, what does that mean? At the time, any kind of interracial relationship could be seen as a form of debauchery. So the fact that he brought 
um, his white girlfriend across uh, state lines um, was cause for the, the uh, government to go after him. And of course, this wasn't just about his sexual exploits, but it was the fact that he was at the time the undisputed uh, heavyweight champion and they needed to make sure that they took that title away from an African-American man. And they did all sorts of things, including convicting him under the Man Act. So um, it was super fun to to yeah. get to explore that in a different setting right. um, than a sports uh, a sports film. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you, you know, especially about the most recent book. Um, I'd love to know about, you know, growing up in Ontario, Canada, and just like your, your background with reading and writing. I mean, we always the, you know, I don't know, Sports Illustrated for kids. I don't know if you remember that one. Um, you know, were you getting the Sports Illustrated every week? Were you, did you play a lot of sports or were you more of a fan? And then of course, just the reading and writing part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So I've actually always been more of a doer rather than a follower in terms of sports. So from a very young age, I don't know if it was my parents just trying to keep us out of trouble or what it was, but I was, you know, scheduled into all sorts of sports. I started out actually as a figure skater, mm. given that I was from Ontario. It's a little cooler yes. up there. Um, and the thing to do for boys in the 1980s was hockey. And the thing to do for girls in the 1980s was um, figure skating. So I mm. actually started, I, I learned how to skate when I was three years old and then, um, sort of transitioned into competitive figure skating. I did that all the way up to age 12. Mm. And if you know anything about hockey and figure skating, those are extremely expensive sports. Okay. So it got to a point where we had to decide as a family, was this something that I was going to pursue really hardcore and really try and, you know, make this into a path towards real high level competitive figure mm -hmm. skating or just, you know, maybe take up another sport that was a little less expensive. So I actually decided at that point to kind of back away from that because it had gotten to the point where it wasn't fun anymore. It was sure. just, it was tons of training, like mm -hmm. almost every day. Um, and then after that, I mean, all throughout, um, my childhood, I played soccer as well. I was a big soccer person. I played on the first women's or shall I say in the first girls league um, in my hometown um, when I was seven. And uh, I played that all the way up to my last year of high school. Let's see, what else did I play? I also played um, rugby played varsity rugby the first year that they had it uh, at York University in Toronto. Okay. Um, I was really small, but the thing that I could do was I could kick mm. and I was fast. Um, so they put me at fly half um, and winger uh, so that I could, you know, use those skills. Um, unfortunately, I got really badly injured. Yeah. And that was actually when I transitioned more fully into pursuing dance. Um, I had taken dance all throughout my um, high school years. Um, but then I started to pursue it um, as a freelancer when I was in university. Mm. Um, so 
you know, for me, the sport and the dance always went together because yeah. they were athletic pursuits for me. Um, but yeah, that's how I, I started out. And I, I, of course, I grew up with a brother and a dad who also liked to watch football, American football. Mm. Um, we watched the CFL, which is Canadian football. Of course, they watched hockey, although I never really got into hockey. Um, but my favorite was always the World Cup and um, NBA basketball. Um, so those those were the things that I enjoyed uh, growing up. But I would say mostly I'm more of somebody who enjoyed sport and fitness as opposed to somebody who um, was more of a spectator. Sure. So the, the, the old uh, rugby to dance pipeline, huh? Yeah. Can you believe it? <laughs> but, you know, it's the same kinds of skills. Hmm. I mean, we've seen this before with um, linemen taking ballet and uh, all uh, sorts uh, of uh, things. Yeah. You know, it, if you have agility, yeah. it that's a transferable skill. So um, and I could kick. So that's <laughs> that's why they, they put me on the team. There you go. What about your, your reading and writing life? Were you the kid at the library getting all, you know, all the sports biographies or Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew or, you know, what were you reading growing up? Oh, gosh, I read everything. I was a very um, voracious reader when I was a kid, largely because we had very little technology in my house. Now, actually, my mom doesn't have any internet. She does not have a smartphone. Um, which can kind of make uh, communication a little difficult these yeah. days. But at the time, we had no VCR. We mm -hmm. had very limited TV. So I I spent so much of my time reading, um, reading novels of all different kinds. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I really had a favorite, but I just was somebody who read and read and read. That's great. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a foregone era right i mean i i, I have so much uh, respect for your mom i know if you <laughs> reach her but good for her she's not you know on the cesspool this twitter all day and whatever oh man no not uh, at all and i honestly if you even said the word twitter to her she probably would have no idea what that is <laughs> what would that be like beautiful beautiful <laughs> I mean, part of the book and part of your personal experience you talked about being a dancer for the raptors remind me when they came to the when they came to the nba even Maybe mid nineties. Yeah, so I, um, I started out with them the second season. I was not with them the first season, but they still consider me an OG. Mm -hmm. So the folks from the first and second season are considered the folks who really started out with the team, and it's very you know first few seasons. And um, I went to the audition. This would have been when I was um, a rising junior mm -hmm. in college in the summer, because they always have the auditions for the dance pack in the summer. Mm -hmm. And I went on a dare mm -hmm. from a friend of mine and ended up making it all the way to the end of the auditions. There must have been a good, you know, five, six hundred people. And somehow I made it on. And I remember thinking, oh, now I really got to think about it. Can I actually do this as a college student? Um, but I'm glad that I, I did because they've been uh, like a family for mm. me um, since then. And so that was 1996 Yeah. Um, wow. when I was with the Raptors. And then I did three seasons with okay. them. Yeah. 
I mean, what kind what kind of life is that? Like, is that just all fun? I mean, is it, or to get to be some, you know, to get, is it work also? I guess all the above probably, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, you were asking me before, am I more of a spectator, more of a doer? Mm. I think the fact that I have this experience both as, you know, pretty competitive athlete, competitive figure skating, competitive soccer, all the way through varsity rugby, and then into, you know, the professional dance space. I understand what it means to do physical, you know, what physical labor, things that folks would consider play. Hmm. I understand what it means to do that as work because it's sure. not the same thing, right? Yeah. So it is work and it requires a lot of training and a lot of sacrifice in terms of making sure that you keep your body the way that it needs to be kept. You um, train yourself so that you can do the things that the job requires. Um, so no, it wasn't all mm -hmm. fun. Um, we would have... Um, and this is something that a lot of folks don't know, we would have a rehearsal for three hours, maybe the night before the next game, mm -hmm. and then have to perform the routine that you learned, or maybe two routines that you learned from the night before the very next day. Mm. And so, and you know, there's no room for error once you go off the music you are you're done because it was you know the choreography was really fast and you're in front of potentially tens of thousands of people so um yeah you you mm -hmm. can't be you have to be sharp in order to be able to accomplish that and we were you know um more of a dance team than we were a cheerleading squad. So we actually learned full routines yeah. to perform in front of, uh, in front of fans. Right. Well, you, I mean, you make a good point in the book about obviously there's so many other people involved besides just the players on the court in a game and the people work concessions and, you know, all of the above. Did you feel like you saw like some of the machinations of the NBA in general, or was it more, just to the dance team. Did you see a lot of kind of what was going on on a day-to-day -day basis? Not so much from the player's perspective, although, because, I mean, one of the things when you're a dancer, you're around the same age as most of the players. Mm -hmm. And some of them, you might get a sense of like what's going on with them. If you happen to have a conversation with them or you see them out somewhere in the city, but I mean, even from the perspective of being a dancer, you can kind of see how these franchises spend their money and where they don't spend their money um, and what the priorities are of the organization, how the organization wants to project itself to the fans. Um, so we could even see that as dancers. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder how, as you got into into college and beyond and all that. I wonder then kind of what you were reading and writing and how you, you know, how you got into becoming a historian. What were maybe some of the the books or some of the writers who um, really propelled you to that career? Oh, wow. That's a great question. So when I graduated from high school, there was a lot of emphasis in Ontario at that time to try and get women into the STEM fields. Mm. And I was I, you know, I grew up the kid of a ma high school math teacher. Okay. Um, my brother was very good in math and science. He went into engineering, but I was always the, the kid who did well at those courses, but 
loved reading books Mm -hmm. and was fascinated by history. And so I felt a lot of pressure to go into STEM. And ultimately, I did decide to um, go into, initially, I I started a program and I did history as a minor. Mm. But then I found once I went to college that I was a little bit too linear in my thinking to be, you know, a literary person, (laughs) even though I loved reading literature. You know, when you get to college, it gets a little bit more complex than just reading books and commenting on them. So I got really pulled into history. And at the time in in the history department at York University, the best uh, teachers were really in early modern European history. So that's actually most of the courses that I took were about the Renaissance Mm. and early modern Europe. But then I took this course in my senior year. It was called, I think it was African-American Civil Rights post-1945. And that course just blew my mind. Um, and I started doing a lot of reading in that area. And that's actually what I think set the stage for me going into history and African American studies thereafter, because I felt like it's, it spoke to so many things that were going on in Ontario in terms of race, and whiteness, and, you know, critical perspectives on race that nobody talked about. And I was like, I want to learn more about that so that I can bring that back to Canada. Hmm. Um, But then uh, I, you know, when you go to graduate school for a PhD, it takes a long time. So you end up, you know, establishing a life for yourself. Um, And I've just ever since 2001, that's when I came to the U.S. I've been here ever since. But yeah, I got I got into looking at sport because I wanted to understand African-American history better. Mm -hmm. Um, So it wasn't really that I came in only thinking about sport. Mm -hmm. I I thought sport, because of the place of African-Americans in professional sport in particular, whether it be professional basketball or professional professional boxing, Mm This is the perfect spot to look at how, how do everyday people understand these larger questions of race, empire, segregation, et cetera. And that's really what brought me into um, looking at sports history, because I think it's just such a powerful lens. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so many times in reading the book where it's like, say, late 60s, when a lot of the white sports writers were talking about kind of like, oh, you know, these kind of like black power, um, you know, players and into the late 70s, kind of when the book ends, kind of, I know you have the epilogue, but just about, you know, like, oh, man, it's so much so many drugs. And of course, like the Kermit Washington thing. And it's just like you, you see, obviously, hugely, hugely, huge parallels to today, right? Like, even, even you know, like, even like make America great again, and all of that. right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, the whole idea of we learn history, so we don't have to repeat it. You picked out some really interesting scenarios and and, and uh, what's what I'm looking for anecdotes from the from the sports world that really brought it to today. Even even though the book you know ends with like the magic, more or less ends with like the magic and and Larry Bird days. When you were talking just now about Jack Johnson, like I'm, I was reminded of uh, I don't even know what time I don't know maybe 15 years ago, probably more than that. Do you remember like when Terrell Owens was on Monday Night Football and he there was like a 
like an intro to the episode, an intro to the game or something like that. And he was dancing with, and I think it was a famous actress, like a white woman. And I just remember there was a huge uproar about like really kind of like um, reinforcing stereotypes, you know, of like the, that you write about in the book as well, of like the, like the sexually aggressive black male and all of that. And I just, I, you know, it's one of those things where like if, if we, Americans, whomever, would have learned way more about history, we would have seen those parallels to like, even like Jack Johnson, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's one of the things that I find so interesting about the sporting space is that even though, you know, I mean, we've essentially moved beyond, I think, moved beyond. Mm. I don't want to say that completely. But as a, as a society, we've sort of um, shifted away from biological understandings of race, okay. but there's a way in which the physicality of sport you know, breathes new life into those biological ideas um, and allows this, um, you know, this, this discussion of race um, that I think is actually a little bit more open than we might have in other spaces, mm. especially, you know, e even in the 1960s and 70s, right? So, um, it's not as overt as it was when I was looking at the materials from the early 1900s where they just spell it out, <laughs> you know, like they're like, oh, they're pretty candid about the fact that Black people are inferior. Mm. They can't quite say that, though, by the time you get to the 60s and 70s, at least not in a publication. Sure. But what they can do is use crime as a kind of metaphor for racial um, inferiority, you know, propensity for using drugs is a kind of metaphor for a larger kind of rationing, at least in their eyes, with racial integration. So for me, you know, I try not to take everything at face value in reading it, given what I know about the period and the fact that this was also a time of incredible um, turmoil over uh, school integration, mm -hmm. over the quote unquote urban crisis, right? As, as um, more and more folks were, um, essentially, you know, fleeing to the suburbs mm -hmm. using, you know, uh, state-sponsored loans to, you know, live in suburbs away from Black inner cities. And I'm putting that in quotes, mm -hmm. right? Because they weren't necessarily in, always inner cities, but sure. Black neighborhoods and so rather than just reading the discourse that was going on about black athletes and how they had all these problems and that they just weren't trying hard enough, they were lazy, but they were naturally gifted to really sort of set that against the historical backdrop. Mm. For me, the light bulb went off um, when I started reading those reports against the grain and finding that this was actually a racialized narrative about these players. So some of it might've had some truth, 
but the reality is that you can't, you couldn't paint everybody in the league with that brush. And it became a way for the average fan or the sports writer or the team owner to talk about these larger shifts that were happening in society hmm. in terms of, you know, how society was changing in the post-civil rights era. And these, these players became almost like lightning rods for mm-hmm. those types of debates. Again, just to set it up, you know, the book is called Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the Generation That Saved the Soul of the NBA. The The book starts Cobbs, like it was, it was the sports writer. The introduction is about his quote-unquote expose that is, quote, rife with rumor and speculation. This was uh, August 1980. It won a lot of awards. This was, uh, this was right, the one that, you know, was kind of like, oh, we have a huge drug problem. I'm, I think the number that you know, was given was something from like, you know, 40 to 75% of NBA players, but use cocaine. Right. And yeah. obviously that's a huge range. <laughs> um, huge. I mean, if you know anything about statistics, that's yeah. really not going to pass yeah. muster. So I just wonder how, how that was so crucial and why you decided to start the book there. I decided to start there because um, that was the the moment that kept coming up again and again in all of the other books that I read about the period as a way to, um, you know, writers sort of took that article at face value Mm -hmm. and basically said, oh, the NBA had a huge drug problem. And I was like, okay, well, let me actually dig into that. Not necessarily to figure out exactly how many players were using cocaine or whatever. I mean, let's be real. It was 1980. Anybody with a degree of um, disposable income who was a jet setter probably dabbled in cocaine. Mm -hmm. But did that mean that the entire league was in this moral crisis um, and that it's about to fall apart? I just, you know, I felt like there must be something else going on there. And for me, that is the emblem or it has become this... um, kind of emblematic depiction of the NBA um, in the late 70s, arguably across the entire decade of the 70s. And I wanted to kind of trouble that by saying, well, what's actually going on here? Hmm. What are the struggles that led up to this um, moment when the NBA becomes the... um, becomes the the center of a moral panic over cocaine yeah when i mean it really wasn't being talked about um in other venues Mm um it was about unpacking how we got to 1980 and um got to this perception of the league being one that was in crisis And I couldn't separate that from the fact that over the course of that same decade leading up to 1980, there had been all of these labor struggles Mm -hmm. um, in the league that were black led, 
And the number of Black players ballooned in this period. Um, and white fans, white sports writers, white team owners were all concerned about this um, increasing demographic and stylistic shift in the game. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, that that article is more of a metaphor of the larger racial panic yeah. going on, not just in the league, but also in the variety at that time. Right. I had the pleasure to talk to Donovan X. Ramsey. He wrote uh, When Crack Was King. And, you know, the story you're talking about, I guess this would have his the story he cites would have been, I don't know, 84, 85. But there was mm -hmm. that um, that that later debunked story about, you know, like the like the crack queens type of thing. Yeah, I'm basically like led to policy and led to, you know, shifts in the way that people looked at the the crack epidemic and ended up being, you know, totally false. Just this idea of like just being rife with rumor and speculation, like um, and it kind of becomes gospel, right? I mean, this dovetails with how I actually came to this project. Mm -hmm. I had started working on um an article about len bias oh yeah and looking at um, discussion surrounding his um death from cocaine intoxication in 1986 just a few days after the nba draft when he was drafted by the boston celtics mm -hmm. huge university of maryland college park basketball star and how he became this kind of again a symbol of a greater moral panic about what's going to happen if these if this drug gets into the hands of everyday black people mm. and it you know it sets off um all sorts of discussions about the need to punish the need to punish um which you know helped to fuel the 1986 anti-drug bill um, under the Reagan administration. And so, you know, part of what I was trying to do um, in starting to look back in time, was to think, why was it so common sense for folks to point to Len Bias and say, oh, we need to punish people <laughs> in order to fix this drug problem. Right. We need to incarcerate particularly more black and brown men who are seen as the root of this drug problem in order to um, curtail its effects. And that's when I discovered this whole other story. Um, and that sort of led me to a lot of the research for Black Ball. I appreciate that. I was trying to, I was trying to find the name of that, of that article that I was thinking about with Donovan Ramsey, but it was about like, you know, the, the so-called crack baby and that it mm -hmm. just, you know, just became totally sensationalized. And whether it was in that book or, you know, like you talked about, right? I mean, I don't know if, I don't know if you know, but I'm pretty sure, right, that, that Lenny Bias was, it, was, it wasn't it was crack cocaine. It was, you know, powder cocaine, which. It was powder which, cocaine, yeah. Right. But that became part of the mm -hmm. mythos is that he was using crack. But no, right. it was actually powder cocaine. Right. Which is a big difference, right? When there's all kinds of different yeah. sentencing, sentencing for powder cocaine versus crack and, and all that. The story of Maurice Stokes, right? I want to say, mm -hmm. was that in the fifties or the sixties? Yeah, the fifties. The yeah. Right. And just like, you know, the, so you write about in the introduction to like, you know, the slow integration of the NBA and like these kind of unofficial, like, Oh, only a certain amount of black players on a team, even if it wasn't codified and, you know, the MBPA, the players association was fairly new and, you know, all, all players, but especially black players were, 
were treated horribly as far as just be, you know being labor and you know obviously for a while they couldn't be free agents but just the story of of Stokes and how he really was not helped terrible like what accident or sickness just this idea that the players especially black players were really treated like labor and that was it not like human beings saying that, hey there's no Michael Jordan there's no LeBron there's no AI Allen Iverson without Spencer Haywood and Kareem and the ones you talk about in the 70s I wonder if you've if you feel like kind of like talked about at the very beginning, if you feel like they're really, it really is an ignored era, the seventies and maybe if so, why? I think the seventies. Yeah. I mean, have been largely overlooked because of the fact that the period um, has typically been discussed, particularly the late seventies as the quote unquote dark ages of the NBA, a mm-hmm. time when black players were, all using drugs, right? If we if we take Chris Cobbs's um, article as gospel, when violence was on an uptick in the league, I mean, one of the fascinating things when I was looking at the Kermit Washington case was just how much fighting and the crisis of fighting was really on the radar of the NBA, and they worried about how that would look to their fan base, which was largely white. Um, And so I tried to really kind of unpack or not just recuperate this period in terms of, you know, bringing it into view for um, hoops fans um, and and folks who were interested even in the black freedom struggle, Mm -hmm. but also to really try to unpack why (laughs) it was, a period that we don't really discuss anymore. Yeah. Um, or, or to even, um, to even sort of challenge some of the orthodox understandings of that time period, mm-hmm. whereby, you know, the narrative was that uh, players in the 1970s, and when you say players in the 1970s, and the league was, you know, approaching 75% black you're essentially saying black players mm. were driving up um, contract prices. Um, mm-hmm. They were using the fact that they actually had a rival league in the American Basketball Association to push the NBA and the ABA to give them bigger contracts. And they were always being blamed for bringing about the, the financial ruin of mm. professional basketball. And I just thought, what that's a kind of a bizarre understanding of that mm. time period because if team owners, um, you know, they were the ones who actually held all the power to sure. determine if the contracts would be, I mean, there was no free agency <laughs> mm. um, until the very last part. I mean, even then it was limited free agency in the last part of the decade. So I just thought that's a really bizarre narrative of labor in the NBA. And I really wanted to kind of unpack those things in the book. You talked about growing up in, in in Canada, obviously with the knowledge, such a knowledge of hockey. My not a fan of hockey. My knowledge was, you know, uh, NHL '94, one of those video games. 
and <laughs> which is a pretty cool game. Uh, my brother would always beat me, gosh dang it. Part of the game even is that you built into the game was to have a fight every, I don't know, 15 right. minutes. And you write about in the book, you know, I mean, hockey, it's, it's part of the sport. And it's like, oh, these tough guys. And look at him. He's got, he's missing a tooth. Right. But obviously it's, it's a majority white sport. Yeah. It didn't have the same resonances as mm. two very large black men yes. fighting on a court in the context of the urban crisis. Sure. The cultural associations weren't there to make it seem mm. like it was criminal. Mm. Right. That's where your historian background is. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much. Right against that backdrop. The part one of the book is, is called Battling Monopoly. Um, so Connie Hawkins, right? He, the great Connie Hawkins had like a, you know, I'd say scandal in quotes, a college betting scandal, which he was definitely a pawn at the very least, or at the most, I guess you'd say. And he was basically put in like seven years of exile, right? Kind of like in the ABA, not playing in the NBA because of that scandal. I wonder about Connie Hawkins' story and how he was you know, kind of exiled. Yeah, I mean, that story actually struck me, particularly because we were at the very same time that I was doing the research, witnessing the NFL essentially blacklist um, mm. Colin Kaepernick. And nobody was bringing up Connie Hawkins. Mm. And I mean, obviously their stories are a little different. Colin Kaepernick for his political protest. Right. Connie Hawkins for his alleged associations with a game fixing scandal, which nobody investigated properly. Mm. He was ruthlessly treated by the criminal justice system and then spat out mm -hmm. um, without being vindicated. Um, and, you know, the league they basically said, okay, well, we don't, we're just going to wash our hands of folks like him. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, and this was part of a larger um, trend at the time, especially in the, the early sixties of the league essentially saying, well, we were, we're only going to allow certain kinds of black players into mm. the league. So it's a form of, um, you know, controlled integration where we'll let a certain number of, of uh, black players into the league, um, a certain number of black players on any particular roster. Mm -hmm. And we're only going to choose those who are, you know, squeaky clean. Either they have to be immensely um, talented or, you know, have these physical attributes or we also need them to be, you know, squeaky clean in terms of, um, you know, any associations with crime of any kind or, mm. you know, behavioral issues or, you know, personality problems. And so um, this was a very common practice in, um, in the league, really up until, um, you know, Connie Hawkins's uh, lawsuit, antitrust lawsuit, mm -hmm. basically, you know, exposed that practice. Um, and, you know, with the help of his lawyers, the Littmans, he basically illustrated that the league had conspired to um, not allow him entry into the league um, in order for him to make a living. Um, and this, again, was a very common practice, particularly against Black players at that time. Um, so I think 
his lawsuit really opened up the league to subsequent antitrust mm. cases. And each one sort of stripped away at the monopolistic practices that the NBA had so long. And of course, these were not things that only affected black players, but black players, I think, because they weren't coming from generational wealth, mm. because they understood, uh, you know, in a historical, in a personal sense, what it meant to be excluded, what it meant to be held in economic bondage, they were the ones who took the lead mm -hmm. in all of these lawsuits um, yeah. and really helped to gain player rights for everybody in the league. Yeah. We talked about like what was, you know, allowed by the owners and by the NBA and, you know, Spencer Haywood kind of, Spencer Haywood and others, especially like late 60s that you write about, they just kind of took it and he wasn't, he was a cool, like, you know, pretty laid back kind of guy, but like, you know, he, the way he dressed, he described just like the way he dressed and, you know, respect, respectability politics, kind of like, eh, like, I'm just going to be who I am, you know, it helped that he was very talented, but he was just like, Hey, you know, this is who I am. And, and he and others were able to just, you know, as much as possible in America in 1968 or whatever, be, be themselves. But his whole thing, right. Is like with the ABA NBA merger, he he and others were saying, Hey, we're not allowed to, uh, we're not allowed to get our fair market value, right. If there's not that competition. So I just wonder about his connection to like players rights and like the NBA ABA merger that was, that obviously did happen um, eventually, but took a while to happen. Yeah. So Spencer Haywood was the first um, player who entered the ABA under what they called the hardship clause. Mm. At the time, um, the NBA had something called the four-year rule, and mm. the ABA initially had this as well, where you had to be four years of your high school graduation in order to be eligible for the draft. Mm. And the NBA kind of said this was a humanitarian exercise. They were making sure that young men would finish college before they would enter the NBA. Mm. But in reality, it was kind of, you know, a, a gentleman's agreement between the NBA and the NCAA, whereby the NBA would not, you know, go after college level players while they were playing for the NCAA in exchange for the NCAA essentially operating as their free farm system. Mm -hmm. um, and that was in place, you know, not again, not to sort of shield the players, but more so to protect the financial interests of both entities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the ABA ended up putting in this hardship clause in order to undercut uh, the NBA. They basically said a player could be drafted before the four, four years were up mm -hmm. if they could demonstrate financial need, financial hardship. Well, for most black players at the time, that was very easy to prove <laughs> that you, you had some financial hardship that necessitated you leaving college early in order to be turned pro. Hmm. So Spencer Haywood came into the ABA under big fanfare and um, he thought that he had a great contract mm -hmm. with Denver at the time. But then he started hearing things 
Um, and other players were like, well, you might want to go back and read the fine print yeah. of your contract. And then um, he discovered, hey, I need an agent to represent me. Let me go renegotiate this because it had all sorts of caveats in it whereby he did not actually, um, he was not earning the amount that they said he was earning. So much of it was uh, uh, deferred and therefore unguaranteed comp um, compensation. Mm -hmm. It required that he would have to, um, you know, serve the team for X number of years um, after he had retired in order to receive this compensation. So he sought um, representation, went back to the owners of the Rockets and said, okay, um, let's renegotiate. This contract is not what you said it was. Mm -hmm. um, and they said, well, a contract's a contract. We're not going to renegotiate with you. They basically uh, sued his agent for inspiring a breach of contract because mm. Haywood sort of stopped playing for them and basically sat out. Um, and Haywood ended up counter suing them. And while all of these, you know, legal fights were going on, he reached out to the Seattle Supersonics, which was a new expansion team at that time. And they ended up signing him. And this mm. was in the NBA. Well, he thought, oh, the NBA is going to allow me to, to play. But the NBA said, no, you mm. just violated our four-year rule. You did not go through the typical draft process and follow the draft rules. So no, you can't play. Mm. So, um, you know, and Haywood sued them and he eventually got the right to play. And, you know, the, the four-year rule was essentially deemed against in violation of antitrust law. Hmm. You can't, you know, deny the right of employment to a whole class of people. Um, and that this was essentially, you know, the NBA operating as a monopoly. Hmm. And so if you didn't have Spencer Haywood's case in bringing down the four-year rule, you wouldn't have players like LeBron James. Hmm. You know, you wouldn't have, um, you know, the the players who have been able to leave college early to go to the pros. Yeah. You wouldn't have any of that. Um, it would still be quite rigid in terms of how you could enter the draft and on what terms. Yeah, like Moses Malone to Kevin Garnett to, yeah. Hmm. What I really got from the Spencer Haywood part and that you wrote about really well is that, you know, once he came in, not doing his four years into the ABA or NBA, whatever, like he, he had like a target on his back, right? He was, he couldn't, he could never really live up to, it was always like, ah, look at this guy, you know, he's hot shot. He's all about the money. And he, mm -hmm. so he really never had a chance. The, the book moves on to like, we talked about a little bit like the conservative media of the sixties, like late sixties, especially, you know, black power movement, the black Panthers and, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was, a quiet protester, but he was a protester nonetheless, right? He was, he was somebody who knew his worth. He talked about how he grew up in a, you know, very like pan-African, pro-African family. And, you know, even to this day, you know, if you ever hear him on his commercials and on TV, he's very soft-spoken, um, but was very clear about, you know, his, his belief and his, his self-worth and, you know, even changing his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar from Lou Alcindor. Um, and there's also Wally Jones who, 
was, you know, in so many ways, it's just like the perfect basketball player, perfect, you know, giving back to the community. He ran his camps. He was, did all kinds of things for people in the community. Um, I wonder about kind of his story about, and like the double standard about how he was treated with like any suspicions of his quote unquote guilt. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Wally Jones, uh, you know, from the days of him being a Philadelphia 76er had been very much all about, you know, talking very candidly about what it was like to grow up in an impoverished black neighborhood to, you know, be, uh, you know, approached by gang members to have, you know, watching people around him using drugs, et cetera. And he had been very active um, in the local community in Philadelphia and then also in Milwaukee when he uh, became a buck, summer, having summer camps for mm-hmm. young kids and really trying to do a mentorship of kids. So what became really ironic was the way in which uh, even the sort of the the sort of rumor or taint of drug use mm-hmm. And there were all sorts of problems with the way in which he was, quote unquote, I don't know, entrapped <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 by the Bucks organization and the, the way that they handled the, apparently they had sent a, um, a, a private investigator who had supposedly found um, some white powder in his pants. Uh, you know, they had gone through his room his pants in his room and it took them, you know, a certain delayed time period in order to bring it to a private lab to get tested. And then supposedly it was cocaine. Not even the LA prosecutor would take this case because they mm-hmm. said oh, the handling of the evidence was, was um, questionable. Right. But they used that whole scenario to essentially, you know, cast doubt on him as a, a player um, and they put him up on waivers um, because they wanted to get rid of him and no other team would touch him at first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it was kind of like an open secret in the league at that time that if you wanted to invalidate the contract of a player, you kind of cast a suspicion of drug use on them. Mm-hmm. And so he became this, you know, this guy who would not roll over and take it. And so he went to the media. He had his own doctors um, to give him um, a physical. And he protested this and said that they were, you know, using him as a scapegoat Mm. and basically smearing him in the press. Um, And what was so interesting about him is that he ends up um, becoming somebody who uh, uh, talks about drugs and sports in front of um, U.S. lawmakers. Mm. And he exposes, I mean, what's so interesting is that he uses his time testifying about, um, ostensibly about performance-enhancing drugs and their mm. use in sports. And he actually was able to sort of take that moment of testimony in front of lawmakers and expose how teams were actually 
the ones promoting the Oops. use of <laughs> performance yeah. enhancing drugs yeah. by creating these, you know, unmanageable conditions for young athletes, particularly young black athletes who had mm. so much riding on whether or not they could make it to the pros mm. that they were willing to be shot up in the back, you know, with painkillers or whatever, in order to get back on that court in order to perform. Um, and he connected that situation of the black athlete in big time sport with what was going on in communities where young kids, you know, felt disaffected, um, were experiencing just such high levels of stress living under the conditions that they were. And therefore it was not surprising that young people were turning to drugs in order to deal with these larger structural problems in their neighborhoods. Mm. And I thought that that was just a showed in, in a lot of ways, the kind of critique that athletes could level, not just against um, the inequalities and injustices in sport, but also how those connected back to larger issues in the black mm. community. Yeah. He didn't shut up and dribble, did he? No, he did not. He did not. <laughs> As we get into, I guess, the mid mid seventies stuff. I mean, you've we talked about like the really hard fought victories, and unfortunately, a lot of them took a long time. But you know, these incremental victories. If there's victories on the court, there's also going to be victories, you know, in the front office, on the on the sidelines. Casey Jones and, and Lenny Wilkins were some of the really successful coaches who, you know, had their struggles, of course, to be fully accepted. But my my memories of Casey Jones, of course, for you know, for the Celtics and Lenny Wilkins, I guess more so with the Hawks. And just really, really, really cool, calm, and collected. I wonder how much of that was that they felt like they had to be to, you know, combat these, these negative stereotypes and the, the ways that, you know, like the black quarterback was not seen as someone who could, who could be successful, et cetera. I wonder how much of that you think was calculated on their part and how much maybe it was just the way they were. That's a good question. I mean, I don't know. You'd probably have to ask sure, them. Sure. Um, You're not I a mean, psychologist too? Come on. I'm not a psychologist, <laughs> but I can say that, you know, in the context of the time, you know, had been hotheads, there's no way they would have even made it to that level mm -hmm. of, of the, the NBA hierarchy. Yeah. Because again, much like with players, black players in the 1950s, who were the first ones into the league, you had to have a certain way of being. Mm. You, you couldn't be the flashy guy. You couldn't be the hothead. Mm. Um, they just wouldn't let you into that circle. And so I think that it's not surprising that the, you know, the first coaches who, you know, that first wave of black coaches that you see the same kind of personality traits amongst these guys, because those were the ones that yeah. ownership would trust to mm. oversee a team. One of the things that I found, found in my research, which was really interesting, was this kind of racial dynamic um, in coaching, whereby in the um, sports magazines at the time, 
the archetypal white coach, like a Bobby Knight kind mm -hmm. of not mm -hmm. to not to bring yeah. him up into this conversation. But the coach who win at all costs, yell at your players, mm -hmm. like you can abuse them verbally. But as long as you're getting these black players, and again, when you're saying players in mm -hmm. the 70s, it's a majority black league. Um, yeah. And you're talking about a white coach being able to discipline, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's impossible to sort of take that out of its racial context. Mm. And yet what I found with a lot of the black coaches, um, Casey Jones, um, Al Adels and others, when they'd be interviewed about how they coached, you know, some of it had to do with the fact that they had also been players, but they also had this much more, I would say, like democratic approach yeah. to coaching, whereby they talked about the fact that they saw players as human beings who had Weird, thoughts right? of their own. <laughs> like, yeah, mm -hmm. can you imagine that? <laughs> um, and that their job was to facilitate them to play their best game mm -hmm. rather than browbeat them, sure. you know, or shame them into playing better. Yeah. Um, and so that was one of the things that really struck me about that generation of coaches was that they were taking, I think, some of the cultural shifts that were happening in activist circles, in political circle, black political circles at that time, taking that and using it in the context of getting the best performance out of their team. Thank you for that. I'm not sure the pronunciation, Simon Gordine. Mm -hmm. He was in so many ways was ready, had been primed to become the commissioner, well-respected all around. He'd done his work. He had, all, he had the, the CV, so to speak. He had the resume. Um, I wonder what, how pivotal was that he, in the end, who was thought to be the next commissioner, this was after Kennedy? Yeah, after Walter Kennedy. And yeah, Walter I, Kennedy even even mm. sort of vouched for him and right, said, right. hey, <laughs> here's mm. my potential successor. I wonder if you kind of have done any like kind of like a speculation, like what how things might have been different if you had become commissioner at the time. Oh, man. I mean, that that brings you into all sorts of counterfactual yeah. <laughs> um, discussions. <laughs> I mean, it would have been huge. And that's why I think Black journalists at that time were so um, excited about this mm -hmm. possibility. And and in some ways, you know, embrace the, the potential of it to the point where it kind of blinded them from the fact that mm -hmm. the league had absolutely no desire mm -hmm. at the end of the day to make him commissioner and and by the league i mean that executive committee of coaches um that determined who the next commissioner was mm. um, and that's one of the things about the commissioner position is that they aren't these impartial voices from on high they're mm. chosen by the owners and sure. so you know in the context of the ongoing oscar robertson at all um, via the NBA trust lawsuit, which eventually helped to bring down the reserve system in professional basketball. With that going on in a league that was becoming increasingly black, I think they saw Simon Gordine as a potential liability. Mm -hmm. um, and even though he protested, uh, you know, and 
his his loyalty to the league yeah. in the sense that he was going to be an impartial arbiter mm-hmm. somebody who would liaise between both sides at the end of the day, they wanted also somebody like um, Larry O'Brien, who became the next commissioner, somebody who is a political operative yeah. in D.C. who could help them get mm-hmm. that merger to happen. Sure. I mean, that's ultimately what they wanted. And I think Simon Gordine just for racial reasons, that he just didn't have those kinds of ties in, in Washington, D.C., Yeah was never really a serious candidate for mm. for becoming the next commissioner. Mm. We talked a little bit already, but I remember like the, especially when the Rockets did really well in the early 90s, you know, with Rudy Tomjanovich, and he was seen, you know, so much of a victim of, you know, the punch from Kermit Washington. And he was, I mean, he got, he got lit up. I mean, it was horrible, um, mm-hmm. you know, horrible injuries and stuff. But you wrote so well about like, you know, Kermit Washington and just like he was, Again, you know, people vouch for him as just a good guy, a peaceful guy. You know, it was somewhere he, it was a split second decision that so many have made. You know, I mean, he felt horrible about it. It was a tragedy all around. You know, even going into like, um, you know, Bernard King later on, who I'd known a little bit about his story, but just like the traumas that he put up with, that he came up with in, in, uh, in New York growing up, you know, child abuse, and then just blatant racism at the University of Tennessee. And it's like, while others, you know, i.e., you know, white people will get the the sympathy that people deserve, you know, for, for going through traumas and coping, you know, Bernard King was just seen as like another symptom of like of the disease, so to speak, of drug use just running rampant. You end with Larry and Magic and when in the epilogue, which, you know, so many people have 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 positioned as like saving the NBA and it did in some ways. I mean, you, you talk about why was it even, you know seen as such a bad thing to begin with in the 70s, but it did. I wonder about the the racial dynamic too with Larry and Magic that that you feel kind of uh, was a good way to end this book. Yeah, I mean, I the, this book was, it was about the 70s, destabilizing some of the, I think, narratives that we all tell about the NBA and, and the NBA also tells about its, itself. Sure. Um, and I th- think that, for many folks, you know, at least my generation, you know, Gen Xers who've, uh, you know, followed the NBA, we often point to Larry Bird, uh, Magic Johnson, and the efforts of uh, Commissioner Stern mm-hmm. as this turning point when the NBA magically cleaned up its act. And everybody started following basketball again, and the league was saved from financial ruin and its bad reputation. And again, I, I'm never one for the simple story. So yeah. I was just like, let me dig into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but now when you you look at what happened from 84, like the early 80s on, mm-hmm. sorry, I was jumping ahead to Michael Jordan, but <laughs> from the early 80s on, against the backdrop of all the struggle that's happened in the 1970s, mm-hmm. it's a little bit more complicated than just they came in and particularly somebody like David Stern was like the savior of the league. One of the things that we forget is that Stern was there from the beginning of mm. the story that I tell. Mm. He was actually one of the lawyers 
who was involved in the Connie Hawkins case on the side of the NBA as outside counsel. So he had sort of seen how the NBA had to kind of manage race throughout the 1970s. And I think that he came to the conclusion that he could leverage this kind of interracial cross-coast rivalry in these players in order to um, play into racial dynamics without addressing all of the political aspects of Mm. race. Mm. How can we curate blackness in a non-threatening way? Well, Magic Johnson became sort of the leading edge of David Stern's attempts to make blackness safe for the masses in terms of the NBA. Um, And he, rather than sort of trying to um, shy away from the fact that black players were now dominant in the league, figured out ways to, you know, make the black aesthetic and eventually the hip hop aesthetic appealing to a new generation of fans while keeping it within very tight boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we have to understand that there were limits, um, I think, to the embrace, the NBA's embrace of blackness in that period. Mm. And of course, it was incredibly successful financially. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Yeah. Thank you for that. uh, I think think it was the name of his children's book was, uh, you know, Kareem wrote about on the shoulders of giants, right? you know, kind of like African-American history in general. And um, yeah, the book, the book does such a great job of talking about the, those giants, you know, who didn't aim to be, but the Haywoods, the Hawkins, the Oscar Robinson, thank you for bringing him up. Kareem who really made, yeah. Iverson able to have his, his moment and Jordan and LeBron and up to, up to today. Thanks so much for for the book and talking to me about the book. I'd love to know if you uh, if you want to talk about any future projects you might have. Are you staying in the sporting <laughs> area? Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely. I, I'm looking right now at um, figuring out what that next project is, but it's going to mm. be some aspect of sport. Um, I don't know. I, I I miss the early 20th century, so I might go back to that time period. But I also, you know, started a little bit of work on Len Bias, and I'm toying with the idea of making that into a larger project so we'll see we'll see what happens wow all sound very interesting it was uh like i said a pleasure to talk to you and so many good nba books recently uh pete corrado's got the one you know kind of about the stern era and this is such a great addition to it i see in the back in your in your book stack there you have loose balls a book about the aba right right yeah absolutely i also recommend the cap which yeah. is about uh, the salary cap in the NBA. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a new book, which just came out this week mm. called Jumpman by Johnny Smith. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which I recommend as well. It actually sort of picks up where uh-huh. Blackball leaves off and offers Ooh. a kind of critical assessment of Michael Jordan and the Michael oh, Jordan wow. years. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know there's a lot to be to be done there. Everyone remembers that what Republicans buy sneakers too type of thing. And right. I'm sure it's a much yeah. more complex story. I'm oh, interested to, to read that. I know about that. Well, thanks for your book that really, you know, is, is part is conversation with so many of these other great books and really, you know, sheds this light on this era that really shouldn't have been so, so quiet. There's, there was so much going on in those days and 
like I said, unfortunately, so many parallels to even even today that not much has changed in some ways. Thanks so much and continue great luck with your writing. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. pleasure it has been to speak with Teresa Runstedler. I wish her continued good luck with her writing and I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow her career and her important work. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch other episodes on the Chills of Will podcast channel on YouTube. Please subscribe to both my YouTube channel and my podcast while you're checking out this episode. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My last name is R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation. I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often ignored art form. Do me a favor, retweet this link from Twitter. Pass it on from Instagram, word of mouth, text, it's all appreciated. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. Both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 213. Had to say it for all my hip-hop fans. Episode 213 with Andrew Porter, the author of, among other work, the short story collection The Theory of Light and Matter, which won the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction and the short story collection The Disappeared, which published in 2023, April. This episode will air on November 21st. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Teresa Runstedler, whose work, like Blackball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the generation that saved the game, gives you chills at will. Mm-hmm.